0: Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. I'm your host, Christina McAteer, and once again, have the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Bestness. How are you today, Catherine? I am great.
1: Once again, it's another great day with you and helping doctors feel a lot more peace about their
0: money. I can't express my excitement enough. I see here the topic now is female physicians and Obviously, being a female is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, but I see that women tend to make a lot of money mistakes, and I can't wait to see how you're going to enlighten us today.
1: Great. Well, I wanted to make sure that we understand that men make plenty of money mistakes too, uh, but I have found some that I think are more unique or more common in women doctors, and those are the ones I thought we should chat about today.
0: I love it. What have you got for us?
1: Well, I have to tell you what a shock this was for me. When I first limited my practice just to doctors, I was on the West Coast, and I had um, a meeting with a prospective client. She was this 40-year-old ophthalmologist, drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she could have put the Kardashians to shame. She was so incredibly beautiful. I thought, hey, you can give up medicine and be a supermodel, brains and beauty. So as part of the initial interview, I'm always asking clients, how can we best help you? You know, what do you need from us? And her answer completely knocked me over. Here's what she said. I need some help from you finding a husband.
0: (laughs) So you go to a financial advisor for help to find a husband?
1: Well, we were a concierge, and we still are a concierge financial planning firm, right? We do deal with everything that has to do with money, but it had never occurred to me that they'd need a matchmaker, too.
0: (laughs) All right. So what was your response to this young lady?
1: Well, I was in complete shock because it never occurred to me that we have a person, a woman, with a doctorate degree. She's obviously brilliant, and that she would feel so insecure about her finances that she felt like she needed a husband to make her feel comfortable and safe and secure. And it was just such a shock. It got me thinking about this and kind of looking for some patterns.
0: Well, I hate to say it, I would dare guess maybe there's some generational connotations to these sorts of feelings.
1: Well, I think you could be right there. Um, but I, one of the things I noticed early on was many of the our single female doctors would not move ahead with our recommendations without checking with daddy. And I, I thought that was a huge surprise because it would never have crossed my mind to check with my father. But also, and no surprise, many of the married women doctors wouldn't make any decisions without their husbands. Now, that makes some sense to me because you want to make sure husbands are involved. But let me tell you another one of my many, many stories. So a number of years ago, I used to do a number of events called Wine, Women, and Wealth. I'd have maybe a dozen women, we'd have wine, cheese and tons of chocolate, and I'd be talking about you know women and wealth and what they could what they could do. And it was one of the things that was very interesting to me was the women were much more engaged than when I would do similar events that were male and female. For some reason, the women don't raise their hands as much. in the male female groups, they weren't asking as many questions. They didn't seem to talk as much. but when they were just strictly women, they were all talking, they were all engaged. Well, out of this event I'm, that I'm thinking about now, I had there were a dozen people. They all wrote me lovely reviews. Yes, we'd like to work with you. Oh, we know you can help. They all went home and talked to their husbands. And what do you think, Christy, those husbands said?
0: Hmm. I would maybe guess some of them felt like their power was usurped.
1: Exactly. They were not your adorable, loving, wonderful husband, who I, you know I'm crazy about, but They were like, oh, we don't need this woman. We've got it handled. I know everything there is to know. I can take care of it. And I knew that that was not true. I know that they were not as smart. They did not have it all taken care of. I knew that we could make their situation better. But I also knew that the relationship would be a complete risk if she, a lot of these women, if they put their foot down and said, no, we're going to go in regardless.
0: The power dynamic is so, so interesting And I've said it before, I am completely amazed at how much content there is to this financial planning. So in some ways, I would dare guess people wouldn't ask questions because it's just so much to swallow. It's hard to process it all and even know what you know and know what you don't know.
1: Right. And when I had the the women and men. Uh, you know, male and female doctors in a group, as I said, the women were less likely to ask questions. I don't know what the dynamic is there, uh, but it was fun to have a women-only group because they just felt like they could let their hair down and, and really get some really, really good information. But this got me thinking about what was really going on with these women. How could I better help them? Because I knew that if they were left to the resources of some of these people who, their husbands that thought they had it under control, they really didn't, that they were going to be harmed down the future. So I want to play a little game with you, Christine. And I did some research on the top 10 fears that all women have about money. Now, this is not uh, necessarily female doctors, although when I run this list by female doctors, they all tend to concur. So take a guess. What do you think?
0: Well, I will say I think a lot of it has to do with contracts. In fact, over the weekend, I was chatting with a young girl who just finished college And she was trying to negotiate contracts at various engineering firms. And her comment was, I'm not sure how to negotiate because I don't know how much I'm worth. And I thought that that was a really interesting insight and kind of points back to a podcast that you spoke of before, sort of having in mind what your hourly rate is. But exactly that, when you're new to the field and you don't know what kind of salaries your colleagues are generating, how do you figure out how much you're worth so that you can advocate successfully during contract negotiations?
1: Oh, that's a really, really, really good point. Well, let me give you the answer and then some insights into that. If you've got access to some industry studies, they will actually list what the range of pay is for doctors in particular specialties uh, at certain stages in their career, you know, new people starting out, right. more seasoned physicians. Um, you can also do it by geographical area. If you don't have access to this, uh, industry specific, you can go online and use salary.com or glassdoor.com and type in emergency med physicians in Rhode Island. And Christy, you will see there um, a bell-shaped curve on where the salaries ranges are. So any female doctor that's looking for a new job, that's a place to start because you really kind of need to know what the going rate is.
0: That's great, because I will be honest, I've been an ER doc for many years now, and this is the first time I'm hearing of these resources.
1: No. Oh, my gosh. No, no, no. It's really, really important. And I did this research for a doctor who was moving to um, Atlanta, and I got him $100,000 more over six years. So particularly when you're offered something that's way lower than what the going rate is, you can very uh, calmly present the research to them. It's you know It seems very unbiased. And it's a way of kind of getting you up to where you need to be.
0: Well, I think that's great. I feel like that's information that is a must-know before you enter any contract negotiations. I would be curious to think about how recruiters weigh into that equation. However, I know that's not the topic for today, so I'll do my best not to distract you. (laughs)
1: yes because we have so much fun i get distracted all the time but i was very intrigued by your response because i found number four on my list of the fears of females is that women do not ask for raises because they're afraid of being fired and that they therefore make less money over time
0: that does not surprise me one bit i'm sad to say it but not surprised
1: and I've seen a lot of studies on women doctors, same thing. They don't make as much money as male. And even when they allow for time out for babies, even when they um, go to specialty specifics, they still are making less. And I honestly found this is true in my own practice. The men were much more likely to get into negotiations, sometimes even pretty hard negotiations. The women were more likely to say, oh, thank you very much for the offer. Where do I sign? And they're leaving money on the table. It's really a shame.
0: It's interesting because I can see it from the women's point of view in that they don't want to be viewed as aggressive. But it's really interesting. I wonder if there are some bosses out there who kind of know that women don't negotiate and therefore kind of prey on them or victimize them a little bit.
1: I don't have any way of proving that, but I've often wondered if that's not the case. Because occasionally I'll find um, a male and female doctor in the same group. And actually, sometimes I see where the men are making a little bit more than the women.
0: Well, this is the age of women empowerment. So here we are giving women education so that they will have the confidence to negotiate well and not fall victim.
1: Yes, I totally agree. So let me go back to my top 10 fears that women have about money. Actually, the number one fear is fear of running out of money, particularly in retirement.
0: Well, that's easy. You just never retire.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's my whole plan. Yeah, I was very excited because I was looking in the news this last week and there was a barber in New York who's 107 and he's still cutting hair. And I go, yes, I want to do that. This fear of running out of money is huge. I have a friend who's a psychologist. Her husband's an anesthesiologist. Together, they're making five, six, seven hundred thousand a year. And she told me once her biggest fear was snapping her fingers and overnight she's living under a bridge as a bag lady. And that was very intriguing to me that she, even coming from such wealth, had this kind of fear.
0: Yeah, it is really interesting. It makes you wonder where that comes from. But I also feel like even though we live in the United States of America that offers so many blessings, there is a lot of vulnerability out there as well.
1: Well, and I think it's true for women doctors because, you know, your profession is so much different than mine. If you retired at 60, 70, whatever year, and you ran out of money at 80, there's no way you could go back and start practicing medicine. You know, your licenses would have expired or nobody would hire you if you've been out of the workforce for 10 years. Very true. Right. And that's much different than, than me. I could retire, run out of money. 10 years later, I just hang up a shingle and start practicing law or doing financial advice again. So it's very important that women have extra money, female doctors, I think, because um, you just want to take care of all those what ifs. All of those worst case scenarios and make sure that when you retire, you stay retired.
0: Excellent. Well, I hope you put your friend's fears to ease so that she can sleep soundly at night. <laughs> of course. I feel like that's my
1: job. Yeah. And honestly, I do that a lot by just more meetings. And if she starts getting nervous about it, I have some very intriguing software that runs kind of probability of success.
0: Absolutely. So, what other concerns do women have about their finances?
1: Number three is that they're not smart enough to learn about finance. Now, this to me is bizarre because, you know, if you ask me about chemistry or biology, I've told you before, I don't even know what mitochondria are. But these same docs are concerned about learning about the ins and outs of finances, and I hear that a lot.
0: Well, I, again, agree. I think it's a very complex field, and it also seems like it's evolving a lot, Um, even just with our recent podcast, and you talked about the 401ks and how in the past there were many different investment vehicles available. Now those have all disappeared. It seems like your field is subject to a lot of change too.
1: Right. Well, I like that actually, because it keeps it very interesting for me.
0: Women are definitely smart enough to learn about finance and you really should make it a priority sooner rather than later in your life. Um, Don't wait for a parent or a partner to encourage you to do so. Listen to these podcasts when you're a med student, maybe listen to them again when you're a resident, and then most definitely listen to them again when you're an attending so that you have the knowledge that you need to plan for yourself to offer security as you age through life?
1: I can say amen and amen. One of my messages, take charge of your own finances. You'll, you'll see as we get into some of the other concerns, a lot of the women have let somebody else usurp that power over them. And that other, their partner may be a spender or their just clueless about things, and they really become a victim then of somebody mishandling their finances, and I hate to see that.
0: Well, I see your next one here is fear of falling victim to financial scams, and, and that makes me worry as well because I think the common attitude in society is that physicians are very well off and therefore are potentially a target of scams. Would you say that that's possibly true?
1: Um, I don't know about scams, but I have seen doctors, the target of our alternative investments. So it's not that they start out necessarily as a scam. They're not a Ponzi scheme or anything that they're trying to rip people off. But it's some investments that are just funky. And I will tell you, those almost always tend to go down the tubes and you lose money on them. So a lot of, I was describing to a doctor earlier today, what we do in a sense on the on our investment side is very boring. We don't, you know, Christy, I never call up and go, oh, I've got the next hot stock. It's going to go right to the moon because I don't believe in any of that. That's how doctors lose money. So don't go for some crazy investment scheme. And you're right, they think doctors have a lot of money, and so they're more likely to be offered these kind of deals.
0: Well, hopefully physicians will go into these deals with their eyes wide open. Absolutely. And potentially even engage some legal advice to review a contract or negotiation before things are finalized, giving them a little bit of protection.
1: Well, I'll run through the others pretty quickly. There's a fear of becoming a financial burden to families, a fear that if they take time off to raise children, their finances will suffer. A fear that in retirement, they're actually going to be spending their time helping an aging relative. Number nine is that they won't have enough cash on hand for emergencies. And number 10 is the fear that their financial decisions will actually let others down.
0: Those are so interesting, particularly those fear of becoming the financial burden to the family, taking time off to raise children, helping an aging relative. It seems like those are all gender roles in our society and very specific to women. What do you think of that?
1: I absolutely agree because it's all about the family and feeling responsible for helping other family members. And I do hear that a lot from our clients. This is not just the female clients, but the male clients, too. A lot of our doctors are not only paying off their uh, student loans, trying to put their kids, but they've got parents who think because their doctors are making a lot of money and they're actually supporting aging parents. And that's really hard. They really are sandwiched between those two generations
0: then. I can only imagine just having the slight knowledge I do of what nursing home or long-term care costs. Wow.
1: Yes. I actually happen to know quite a bit about that because uh, my darling husband that you've met, his mother is 91 and she's in like a senior living facility. It's not assisted living. It's a, it's independent living. It is shocking what independent living is. It's like 7000 a month for a very modest apartment. And you start doing the math on this over a couple of years, it's pretty easy to deplete some portfolios very quickly.
0: Those numbers are shocking to me. And actually, I think that sounds pretty affordable. And when you think back to the kinds of salaries that a 90-year-old would have made. It just is really unfathomable to me how they could have possibly saved enough to pay for that in this day and age. Right, And then it begs the question, what will it be when we get to be the 90-year-olds? <laughs> a scary thought for so many reasons.
1: And it is. And maybe we can have another uh, conversation in the future about long-term care to how to insure against that risk. But Once again, it can get very expensive. So with that, I thought I'd run through the five top problems. We've already alluded to some of these. Number one, female doctors make less than male doctors, as I mentioned before, even when accounting for the same specialties and for time out for children. There was a study done by the University of Michigan Health System and by Duke University, and they found that women earned an average of $12,000 less per year, $12,000 less than men. Even when all the other factors were the same, and that meant over a 30 year career, they're going to earn about $360,000 less. Than a male in the same specialty.
0: That $360,000 is hard to swallow, but even picturing what that $360,000 invested could have meant really is terrifying.
1: Totally. It could put a child through one of the priciest universities. It could buy, it could pay a house off. I mean, we're talking about very, very serious, serious money. Um, and once again, as I mentioned before, they found the researchers uh, discovered that it was just that women were less likely to negotiate a better salary or raises. Very true with our the physicians in our practice. Now, my takeaway is if you are looking at a new contract, do not sign this without getting some really good advice. Find out how to negotiate. I uh, have it looked at. And once again, if you don't know how to do that, I'd be happy to give Uh, some of our listeners a crash course in contract negotiations, because I think it could really help.
0: Well, that's the one thing I like about this point is that I think it's easily remedied. So if we can get women to go into contract negotiations with their eyes wide open and have an expert reviewer to hopefully make it as robust as possible, then we'll get them into a better place.
1: Exactly. I think they just need to know hey, I have to speak up here because there's a really good chance I'm leaving money on the table.
0: Don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid that you're going to get fired.
1: Exactly. Number two mistake is that, as we alluded to before, that women are less likely uh, to have us review their contracts in advance. So I just have to give you another story. One of my all-time favorite clients is this adorable anesthesiologist, and she's moving out of state. Fortunately, she did ask me to review her contract. As I alluded to before, a lot of the women don't. The men will frequently ask us, but not all of the women will. And this clause of this contract had one of the worst clauses in it I had ever seen. I won't go into a lot of the details. It's called a liquidated damages clause in legalese. And what it means was if she violated this contract, and it was going to be really easy to violate it because this contract was written totally in favor of the employer, so it's going to be very easy for her to violate it um, unknowingly. And if she did violate the contract, she was going to owe him $850,000.
0: Well, I'm glad that you were there for it. So I like this story a lot. I think that women sometimes will be a bit naive and just assume that people are looking out for their best interest. And that may or may not be the case. So you do have to have your contracts reviewed and and make sure that you're not getting into a rocky road because it will cost you and you may have to pay for a very long time.
1: I figured it was going to take her four years and all of her take-home pay to cover this if she did what I thought was very likely. So um, I wasn't sure she was going to believe me, which is kind of crazy because how many years I've been practicing law. But no problem. I brought in another attorney who's really, really good at doing the negotiations. And thank goodness, I felt like she dodged a bullet. She ended up um, discovering this negotiation process that that future employer was not going to budge. And honestly, I could tell a lot about his character just reading how horribly uh, this contract was written. So she ended up getting a much better offer. She didn't take this when she went another place. So uh, disaster averted. But once again, really important to review in advance by somebody who knows what they're looking
0: at. I wish it was not true.
1: You know, and I think it could be that a lot of the women doctors really do want to help. They go into medicine because they really like helping people. And maybe they naively think that everybody else on the other side is a good person got their patients' best interests at heart, so they assume that their colleagues have their best interests at heart. And unfortunately, that's not all it is. It's not the business that you thought it was going to be when you went to medical school. No question about that. Well, moving on, my third mistake that I see uh, female doctors make is they either remain single, which is not necessarily a mistake, but they they marry a person who's not making as much money as they are. In other words, they become the chief family breadwinner.
0: Yes, I feel like we're seeing that more and more where men tend to be the stay-at-home role of the women's shoulder, a lot of the family bread responsibilities. And it's an interesting dynamic. In some ways, I'd say it comments to the balance and the power of the relationship, which is a wonderful thing.
1: I have a lot of women doctors in this situation. And what's interesting to me is a lot, sometimes they've made, married the guy who's the stay-at-home dad. Sometimes they marry the guys making 20,000 a year as a volunteer firefighter or all sorts of situations where they're trying to start a business and they've never really gotten around to getting the business off and running. I've got a number of women doctors in that situation. Interestingly, with maybe one or two exceptions, all of them seem very happily married, which I thought is great. None of these guys seem very troubled that their wives are making a lot more money than they are. So part of my advice is if you're in this situation, you really need to stay involved in the family finances. Uh, The ones who get into trouble think their job is just to make the money. And it's the husband's job to manage the money and to spend it. And they kind of check out. And so frequently they really have very little idea of what's really going on with their money. And I've seen case after case where the husband you know, is making maybe 40000 a year. The wife's making sometimes 400000 or 500000 a year. She has no idea what he's doing with the money, but they've got no savings. So he's blowing through whatever it is that she's making. She's working really hard and he's blowing through it. So I would suggest that both spouses, no matter what their gender, they need to have at least a cursory idea of what's going on with the family finances. And uh, number four, is that women physicians and dentists have really not caught up to the new financial normal. And what I mean by that, Christy, is that doctors in general are going to be working harder. They're going to be working longer hours. They're going to have less support. They're going to be making less money. And oh yes, they're going to be paying more in taxes. So there's really no margin for error in today's women doctors when it comes to finances. Because if you make a financial mistake today, a bad choice today, It can take you years to recover.
0: Well, I'm sorry to hear that because I would like to think that there's more than enough money to support a modern day lifestyle. However, I know how expensive life can be. So I hear you about the planning and let's make sure we get it right.
1: Right. And I don't think it's really that hard. You just have to be more careful about your finances. You can't overspend. So a simple thing, we need to pay off the credit cards every month. When I see a client that's carrying uh, credit card balances, then that's telling me they're living beyond their means because they had to go to credit cards instead of an emergency fund uh, for whatever it is that were those monthly expenses. So I also like them to set aside um, funds for long and short-term needs. So short-term emergency funds and of course, long-term, whether it's putting kids through college, retirement, or whatever the long-term's.
0: And how do you counsel your clients on how much money that should be? is that really relevant to what their budget is? Do you have a set amount that you find is helpful to to have a goal? How do you counsel clients for those types of savings
1: So when it comes to emergency funds, for most doctors, I recommend three to five months fixed living expenses. You know by that, I mean mortgage payments, student loans it is not. Trips. It is not new clothes. Uh, It's not, you know, it's not vacations. It is just fixed living expenses. It wouldn't even be savings because if you're in some crisis, you probably stop your savings. And the reason I can say that for doctors is there's such a demand for your services that if you lost your job today, you'd have another one in six weeks. Now it may not be in the location you desire, but it's you're going to have another, you're going to have another job. So we need enough um, emergency fund to kind of get you through that time period. But then I always turn to the clients and say, what does your gut say? What do you need to sleep at night? If you need more than that, then we need more than that.
0: Excellent. I think that's a good approach because oftentimes when you're coming out of residency, you don't have the financial means to have a savings account. So now to start, think about building that money and how much it should be and what you could be doing with it are sometimes thoughtful questions that need to be answered. So thank you for that guidance. So I think
1: before you go out and spend something, whatever it is, whether it's a new bicycle or a five thousand dollar vacation to the Caribbean this winter, I'd be thinking about it. I'm not saying don't go on these vacations. I'm just saying think about what it costs you because it doesn't just cost you today. It's going to cost you in the future. So if you spent five thousand this year. To go to Puerto Rico, um, wonderful, you got some fun in the sun, but if you had invested that money instead and saved it, 40 years from now, you'd have an extra $40,000, which is going to buy you a whole lot more than a trip to Puerto Rico. So keep in mind, yes, I want you to enjoy your life today. Don't get me wrong. I really want people to, to enjoy that, but I think we have to balance that with saving for emergencies and for the
0: future. Maybe the stress release instead of a vacation could be a little bit smaller expenditure, And therefore, you get the benefit of the pleasure and the enjoyment and can take a step back and feel satisfied about the hard work that you've put in. But at the same time, maybe it doesn't cost you significantly down the road.
1: I think that's a great way to frame it up because a lot of times our level of enjoyment does not track with the dollars that we're spending. Or if you can keep in mind something we had in a previous podcast about what are you worth per hour? You know, so for a lot of our emergency med doctors, they might be worth about $200 an hour. So you have to think that it's a dollar for hour trade in what you're purchasing. Is it really worth, if you're buying a $200 handbag, let's just say, is it really worth an hour of your life to buy that handbag? Maybe it is, or maybe it's not. Or let me give you another example. I've got this adorable couple, lovely. You can tell I really love my clients.
0: Rest assured, Catherine, we love you right back. Thank you. I love that.
1: So anyway, this lovely, wonderful couple, uh, for about three or four years in a row, they were taking their kids, their three kids, and they're going to see their parents um, in Italy every summer for a couple of weeks. Now, this was lovely. I've taken my kids to see their grandparents in Greece, so I know how much fun that is, but I also know how expensive it is. And At the very least, this was like twelve dollars or $15,000, which for some doctors, that's no big deal. But for this particular couple, it meant No savings for the entire year. Now, I believe in investing in experiences. Don't get me wrong. I really think that's very important. But I'm saying, do we have to go to Italy every year? Could this year maybe take the kids camping? You know, something cheap, but a different experience, but another great experience just to be with your kids. So think about those lattes and clothes and other things that you're you're buying. And if you track it for a month, you'd be surprised at how much you're actually spending. And then think about what are less painful ways that you could cut back, but still have the same level of enjoyment.
0: Wonderful advice. And of course, if you don't know where the money's going, then you can't take responsibility for it and certainly can't change it. So knowing where your dollars are going and having a budget, and then of course, being able to stick to that budget may sound simplistic, um, but it can be hard to do must be done though.
1: Agreed. So moving on, if I may, um, to number five, women doctors, I should say some women doctors, not all, but they tend to trust their colleagues or online pundits more than a qualified professional. Okay. So a couple of months ago, I'm going to call her Dr. Ann. And she came to me, she goes, Catherine, Catherine, what can we do to get some passive income? And I looked at her, Christy, and I was completely shocked. And the reason I was shocked was we've been working together for six straight years. All we had been doing during this time was investment strategies that were going to create passive income for Anne in retirement. And so I'm looking at her kind of dumbfounded thinking, what the heck did I do wrong that Anne did not realize this had been my strategy for her from the beginning? So I started digging, and it turns out that Anne had been busy doing her online homework and her research with Doc Mom groups and particularly Doc Mom finance groups. So, Christy, I don't know if you're familiar with some of these.
0: Yep, there certainly is a lot out there. And, and it is that it's good advice. However, the problem is is that you never really know the source, so it can be hard to know what to trust.
1: Totally. And you know how it is when your patients come to you and they've been doing their research with on drquack.com or Dr. Google, and they feel like they know everything about their medical problem, and they come and tell you what the problem is and what kind of medications they need what they need to do. I'm sure this happens to you all the time.
0: (laughs) Sure. And who doesn't like their expertise being sought out when you're only going to be told how to manage the situation?
1: (laughs) Exactly. So, of course, you are the expert. You know dozens and dozens of things that this patient doesn't know. And you have to spend a lot of your time unwinding the bad information the patients are getting from online. Well, the same thing happens to us in the financial services industry, Um, And first of all, I want to make it very clear. I'm all in favor of doctors doing research because I've always felt that a better educated client is a better client. I really want them to get educated. But you pointed up something that is very, very important. Most of these doctors haven't considered that the bloggers out there, they're not licensed. They're not regulated. They're not educated in this field. They've never had private clients. There's no one overseeing them. And they can say whatever the heck they want, and they don't have to fear any retribution.
0: That's a really powerful statement because so much of what we think about in medicine is the liability and the responsibility. So the idea of just being online, hiding behind some sort of facade and giving advice without any responsibility for that is, is really quite shocking. And then, of course, makes me question who would really listen to that advice. But then I think it goes back to the emotional side of things that you cited, that maybe people are so caught up in the emotion of what's being said that they're swayed to do something that they might otherwise not think is so realistic.
1: Right. And it kind of reminds me of the days when we got a lot of our news from the newspapers and you thought, well, if it's in the newspaper, it must be true. There's something about reading things online. You think it must be true. Uh, but in fact, just because you're reading a, a blog by an MD or a DDS doesn't mean that they've had the training or education or experience to be offering advice. And I've seen a lot of the advice these guys giving are absolutely wrong. If I gave this advice, the worst that would happen to me is I get sued, but more than likely I'd have regulators that would be um, kind of under regulation. Maybe they'd find me, maybe I'd lose my license for some of the things that you see in these blogs. So uh, one thought is consider the source.
0: Well, I think that's excellent advice. Do you have any thoughts on how to tease out whether it's a reliable source or it is something that we can trust, or is it just a matter of getting a second opinion and operating from the point of consensus?
1: Well, I think you should take that information, whether it's from a doctor or not, and take it to somebody who is less, who is a professional, and double check that advice, just the way you would do with a medical condition. You can do all your research online. Come up with your thoughts, and then take it to a physician that you really trust, and get their their feedback and whether it makes sense. Now let me loop back to what happened with this with the psychiatrist, though. So I I did some digging, and I found out that she was very interested in passive income for doctors. So I found a website. Here's the crazy thing: it was even by an MD. It was talking about passive income for physicians. Sounds good, right? So I thought hello, let's see what she's really looking at. And I looked on this website and there is a list of different things that doctors could do for passive income. And once again, I'm using air quotes around the word passive. They could do locum work. They could be medical directors at nursing homes. They could do forensic medical trial uh, prep. And And the list went on and on. And I know this sounds good, Christy, but there's one really obvious problem here. And it may not jump out to you, but it jumped out to me every item on that list was not passive
0: income. I'm right there with you. I'm looking at it and it looks very active. Exactly.
1: Every one of those is active. So neither my client nor this very esteemed blogger knew what the heck they were talking about. And the reason is this. Passive income is defined by the IRS and it's generally considered to be income that's earned through investments, real estate, limited partnerships, or other endeavors where the person is not actively involved. And to your point, everything on this list, they had to be actively involved.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful point, And it really shows you that you need to do your homework, especially in the era of fake news that we live in. You have to be able to trust your source and you honestly have to do your homework and double check because there's a lot of effort to sway you and operate from a census of emotion, but you can't let that happen. It has to be more objective than that.
1: Exactly right. Because all of this that they were labeled as passive income was actually earned income. It's taxed in a certain way by the IRS. And I think my bottom line is what you've hinted at, which is a little knowledge can be very, very dangerous. Can you tell us another story? Two weeks ago, I get a semi-hysterical voicemail, once again, I'm changing the names and the facts here, from Dr. Jean. She's a 60-year-old pediatrician. She's married to a 62-year-old radiologist, and we manage about $2 million for them. And this is this hysterical message she left on my recorder, Catherine, Catherine, you need to change all of our accounts today. All of our colleagues are moving their money to a 90-10 portfolio, and we're really worried about the market, and we want you to move all of our investments to 90-10 right now. Bang. That was the end of that message. So I'm curious, Christy, because we worked together a long time. What do you take away from that hysterical message?
0: Well, it makes me wonder if Jean knows what 90-10 means, Um, And also, it sounds like, again, Gene's operating from a point of emotion, and that's not maybe the best time to do a complete change in your financial approach.
1: Excellent. Oh, gold stars to Christy. So I had six thoughts that came to me after this. I mean, it's not even a minute-long message. And here's the first thing. You're right. A-plus to Christy. Gene had no idea that a 90-10 portfolio would be 90% stocks and 10% bonds, which is a much, much riskier allocation than her, currently, her current portfolio, which is 70% stocks and 30% bonds. So I think she really meant a 10-90 portfolio. In other words, 10% stocks and 90% bonds, which would be far less risky, but it was also an allocation that won't keep up with inflation.
0: Yeah, I admittedly, I don't think I've ever heard of a 1090. That sounds almost too conservative, although I know you've stated many times before that the approach changes depending on where you are in your career and your time to retirement. So maybe that is a number to be used. However, to me, it sounds less than ideal.
1: Well, I've never used a 1090 portfolio ever. Anything that's not keeping up with inflation, to me, it makes absolutely no sense. But just in case our listeners are wondering, whenever you're talking about a stock to bond ratio, the stock number is always first. So you can use this little bit of trivia to go out and impress your colleagues. So the second thing that came to me was Jean had probably misunderstood what her colleagues were actually doing. Uh, if the colleagues were worried about the market, then they wouldn't be moving from a 70-30 to a 90-10 because that would be increasing their risk, not decreasing it. The third thought was, hello, Jean's colleagues are getting really bad advice from their advisors or no advice at all. Uh, number four, Jean's colleagues are probably in an entirely different situation than where Jean's at. So what's appropriate for them may be a disaster for her. And number 5 i it'd be crazy for me to ex- execute her instructions the way she said, because I would be giving her something that would be far outside what I think she wanted and what she really needed and what would be safe. And the final thing was I needed to have an urgent call with her as soon as possible to straighten this out and make sure that her concerns and her needs are being met.
0: Well, I like the fact that she had to call you to take action. In some way, it seems that it operates as a little bit of a check and balance. So while there may be a pull to act and change things, I like the fact that you get to interject and and offer a moment of clarity and reflection to hopefully prevent someone from making some catastrophic changes?
1: You know, you've really hit upon um, something that I feel describes our role. And it is like being um, a barrier between really between a client and really bad mistake.
0: Well, we're glad you're there.
1: I think my summary for this is, like I said, I'm all for clients getting educated. Um, however, before you act on your colleague or some blogger's advice, get a second opinion from somebody that's a trusted, ethical professional. They know what they're doing. They're licensed, they're regulated, and it's going to be advice that's going to be appropriate for you and your unique situation.
0: Excellent. And I just want to echo the sentiment that we highlighted much earlier in the podcast, but just to remind physicians and particularly women physicians that you have the opportunity to take responsibility for your finances don't step away from this responsibility. You really have to champion this, as it means so much—not only for your own financial health and stress level, but really will have far-reaching implications for your family as well. So, champion this and and be successful with it. Don't leave this up to someone else to manage for you.
1: I want to say amen and amen to that. If you are smart enough to earn this money, which you certainly are, you worked really hard for it. You're smart enough to protect it and take. Be care of it and as much of it as you possibly can. Once again, you're smart. You wouldn't have this degree if you didn't. You can make a lot of money. If you're smart enough to make this kind of money, you're smart enough to protect it and keep it. Number two, be careful with what your colleagues are doing, what the bloggers are telling you. Get your education, but double check it with somebody who is licensed. Number three, for a month, not any longer, it's tedious, but for a month, just track your spending and seeing if there's some ways that you can cut back so you can keep more of what you need. The final thing would be, don't let somebody usurp your power or don't even voluntarily give your power about this to someone else. This is something that you need to take charge of yourself. Even if you're getting help from a trusted professional, you need to stay in control.
0: It's your money. Excellent. Well, hopefully it impacts a lot of our listeners. I hope it gets their minds thinking. maybe prompts them to take action. Again, what we want for you is to feel financial security so you don't have to worry about how you're going to retire or how you're going to plan for your children's future. There is a way to accomplish all of that, but take action early, be diligent, be responsible, and use a trusted advisor. How's that sound, Catherine? It
1: sounds perfect.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time as always and your brilliant insights. We look forward to our next podcast. But for now, Catherine, we'll let you get back to life and enjoy your afternoon.